welcome to this HemeCast where we are talking about sex, sexuality and sexual health. I'm delighted to be joined today by Jo Swiddenbank, who is a registered nurse and a PhD student at the University of South Wales, where she's uh, working on genomics and education for nurses and midwives. And also by April Jones, who is the Haemophilia Nurse Specialist in Newcastle. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So... Sex, I think, is a bit of a difficult issue for many haemophilia nurses to talk about. And so I'd be really interested to hear from the two of you about what you think the issues and challenges are that we face both as haemophilia nurses, but also that our patients face when it comes to talking about sex and sexual health to us. Yeah, so I, I, it, it is true that lots and lots of people find talking about sex difficult, and that is staff as well as patients. But my ideal scenario is that we try and break down a little bit of these barriers and that we just help patients to feel confident coming to us if we if they've got any concerns I feel it's our duty to help highlight some things that patients with bleeding disorders not just boys with haemophilia but but women as well that that may just they might just find challenging in, in their lives and I think that it's our duty to help shape that as part of our consultations in clinic it doesn't mean that every single time they come in we're going to be asking them have you had sex today that's absolutely far from what we want to do but I just want patients to realize that there's at least one person in their department that they can come to if there's anything that that they feel that they're struggling with or need more information about I think trying to reduce that embarrassment is a challenge and I'm not sure always that we know how to overcome that but I think just normalizing that as part of patients lives because they are entitled to that so that's my view on it I'm not sure how you feel differently Joe, or whether you agree well I agree and I think sexual activity and as well as sort of preferences and identities cover a really wide and diverse span and I think there's also quite a generational divide between the younger patients you know those who are kind of in their teens 20s 30s 40s and then the older generations I say older in inverted commas in sort of 50s 60s 70s and above and I think it is difficult to try and sort of reduce the embarrassment on both sides because I feel like perhaps nurses don't really know how to approach it or how to broach it uh, sensitively and then on the flip side patients don't know or perhaps don't know if they feel comfortable bringing this up during a consultation, whether they feel that, you know, especially if their sexual preferences are perhaps something sort of outside the, the norm and mainstream, whether they would feel comfortable discussing that, whether they would feel like they would be judged. So there's sort of a whole sort of mess of issues on the table there. And, you know, equally on the other side, we have to think about how nurses of different generations think and feel about sort of sexual health promotion but sex and sexual activity it's all part of holistic states it's all part of us and our being and it's really important that we address these needs with our patients because it is part of them and part of their lives. So here's the tricky question and I guess there's probably not an answer to it but at what age do you think we should start having these conversations with young people clearly not with the older patients but you know do we start having the sex and drugs and rock and roll chat with six-year-olds or 16-year-olds when it might well be too late or how do you gauge when to start having those conversations? I 
think for those patients that we are transitioning, so those patients that are going through the, the transition process, Ready, Steady, Go, that we used in our centre, it approaches sexuality in a, in a fairly generic way. Obviously, each of those have to be tailored to the individual anyway, but that sort of start, I mean, the transition process starts by 11 plus, but in terms of actual conversations about sex and sexuality, I would argue that that could and should be 13 plus, which is where patients are deemed to be competent. And again, that's absolutely has to be at that patient's level. And also with the parents agreement, it can be very, very generic at that stage and doesn't have to go into any details about penetrative sex or anything like that, which of course, you know, we'll always expect at that age group. But I think if they're curious about questions, they're going to be exploring their bodies. There will be some things that are that are happening at that age group, like masturbation, where they're exploring themselves and I think that if they're experiencing some things which they certainly might not want to speak to their parents about but if it's addressed at an early stage and patients are given that permission that if you've got any questions you can absolutely come to us and we will help to answer them or direct you to somebody who can. So I think that for us it's about sort of 13 plus in our centre. Yeah I would agree with that and of course when you're sort of talking about children of 11 sort of plus obviously they have access to the internet and a whole host of information that wasn't readily accessible to people like me and I'm only 36 years old but yes um, I think you're right they might feel much more comfortable perhaps talking to their nurse who they probably had a long-standing ongoing relationship with and feel they can perhaps approach more easily and readily than their parents and I think you know it's never too early from the ages of about 11 plus to explore even just ideas around bodily autonomy and consent, things that perhaps might not be directly related to sexual activity, but are really important foundational principles that they, they will take with them sort of into their teens and onwards. And do you think that this is really our business? I mean, isn't this something that all teachers are doing for all children at school? Why is it different if you have a bleeding disorder? I don't know if it necessarily is different, but I think you could, it's never too early to reinforce ideas around bodily autonomy and consent, especially if you are someone who is, you know, having to give consent to have treatment on a regular basis. And I think as a society, there's never too many opportunities to really reinforce that message. And as part of these children's lives, you know, I think it's important that we pick up this role as well and reinforce whatever's being taught in school that we are sort of reinforcing that too. I would agree with that and I think that in the schools yes they're getting the foundations and absolutely consent and early part of you know education in schools is talking about relationships what's appropriate what's inappropriate not necessarily about sexual activity but I think once as Joe mentioned earlier coming back to kind of body image and thinking about how we accept ourselves is part of sexuality. Sexuality isn't just about sex. And I think that image of what people perceive themselves to be like helps to shape the relationships that they're going to have in the future. And we're not always here to be, we don't intend to be intrusive when we're speaking about this with patients, but it's very much about that permission granting. And if we can help patients to realise that there are some things that somebody with a bleeding disorder will experience that somebody else who hasn't got a bleeding disorder won't experience and if we can just have that in the back of the patient's minds about well you know if you're masturbating and you get a little bit of blood in your sperm a you're most likely not going to speak to your friends about that because that won't be happening to them but also 
you don't just ask your friends or you, you're unlikely to ask your peers about that but if it's just mentioned once or twice you know throughout their period of growing up they just remember oh I remember what April said about that and so that if they see that they, they're just not going to panic and they can just say oh I remember when you told me about that but this has happened to me and what do you think I should do and and just breaking down that barrier of the fact that patients shouldn't be embarrassed to ring up about any of those things because we're just we're professionals we're not going to judge people as Joe said and we're there to to provide the advice that patients need so I guess one of the things that's just occurred to me while we've been talking is that we sit here as three white women and yet most of the people that we perhaps would be focusing on when we're thinking about sex and and masturbation and blood in your sperm are men and many of the patients that we see are not white so they have perhaps different cultural beliefs and perhaps they would be less likely to speak to a white woman about these issues and what how have you managed those more slightly more difficult perhaps conversations I think just being sort of open and non-judgmental and just them knowing that you are there if they choose to talk about it but as you said you know our experiences as white women only really go so far but we do make up the vast majority of the workforce Mm-hmm. So that does mean that perhaps the options for discussing this sort of thing with someone else would be potentially limited. But, you know, you have to be, we have to be very mindful of the fact that, you know, we can only really speak from our own standpoints and our own cultural experiences. And I think we have to be kind of quite careful when we're thinking about handing out advice that may or may not be helpful. But just having that non-judgmental approach and them knowing that they can approach you if they want to and that you will be there always with that for them with unconditional positive regard I think that's all we can really do unconditional positive regard is really nice I was just going to say that I think having an awareness of that as well so yes we might not have a an in-depth knowledge of every culture every belief system but it's okay to admit that you don't know And actually, I'm not sure how this is going to fit into your culture, but I'm going to find out or I'm going to direct you to the right person so that we can make it appropriate to you. And I think that, you know, sexuality encompasses sex, gender, identity, intimacy, reproduction, and it's experiencing your thoughts, your feelings, your desires, your beliefs, your attitudes, your values, your behaviours, practices, roles, relationships, all of that influences what sexuality is for you as a person and that's going to be different when you've got different biological psychological social economic political cultural legal historical religious spiritual factors all make sorry that was quite a quite a blurge wasn't it but it all impacts on what a person sees to be normal for them normal for you it's completely individual and we have to respect that as healthcare professionals that we we don't know everything and absolutely we can't know everything and patients know that they can come to me in our center and hopefully others as well but I'm not an expert in everything and neither do I want to be and I'm certainly not up to date with the absolute key information about sexual health but we've got fantastic health uh, sexual health services in our city so I can direct them where to go to get that information about sexually transmitted infections because I'm that's not my area of expertise but I think we're just having a knowledge of the fact that we don't know everything but we can always find the right information and yes we might be white women but but we can have an awareness of the fact that other people have differences. Yeah I always say that if I don't know the answer I will be able to find out where the answer is. Yes exactly. I think that's really interesting 
And I suppose the other sort of area that we as healthcare professionals think about is it's that sex and the psoas conversation that we have with young men when they come in with the psoas bleeding. We always assume that that's because they've been sexually active and that may not be the case. Is that the right time to talk sex and drugs and rock and roll or is that too late? I would argue that it's too late, but it may be that they've just not had that conversation yet. So it's absolutely going to help them in the future because the likelihood is that when somebody's had a psoas bleed, they're, they're more likely to have that again because the, that muscle is weakened. I think for those patients that, yes, it's a lengthy stay in hospital, it's intensive treatment and it's very inconvenient for patients. But if you can help prevent that by having that conversation with you know, young men, then hopefully you're going to prevent that in the future. And it just has that in the back of their mind again, this conversation. Oh, I remember that happening. Even if they forget about that and they haven't had treatment or they haven't had their prophylaxis, they've had sex on a Saturday night and then on Monday morning they wake up and they've got that restriction, is acting on it early. So even if it's been a bit too late in terms of the fact that the bleed has happened, but just remembering, oh, I remember that that's got to be dealt with straight away because otherwise it's going to take a long, long time to settle. And so I think as we've sort of talked quite a lot about young people and how we can engage with them in a perhaps a more positive way than we have done in the past. But how do you now introduce discussions about sex and sexuality to that 60 year old man who's never had that conversation before? That's a million dollar question, isn't it? And especially if you are younger than them, it could you do not want to come off as you're being patronising in any way, shape or form. You know, I could totally understand somebody in their sort of 60s or 70s looking at me and thinking well why should I take advice from her she's you know young enough to be my daughter Mm -hmm. so I think again it comes down to having that kind of rapport with them and sort of having that open and unconditional positive regard so that they know that they can ask you these questions should they want to and I think also being mindful of the kind of generational differences in talking about sex maybe that your conversations might be slightly more formal than they would be with someone who was a lot younger and kind of gauging their reaction from that how much depth they would want to go into and what kind of things you could and couldn't discuss with them really. I think that is true and I think that having that trust patients having that trust in you but also having that confidence as as a healthcare professional my opening gambit for any patient is I'm not embarrassed to talk about this and you needn't be either. And I think that I keep coming back to this permission, but even if you're not actually addressing anything with them at that stage, just mentioning it as a very brief line within the consultation of we're here to talk about if there's anything to do with your sexual sexuality that you want to address at any time, that that's okay. So even if they don't do anything there and then later on, they might just remember that. And then if the next consultation, means that they might just be something that was burning an issue or some problem that didn't get addressed then but that they remembered they can address. And I think the longer you have a relationship with a patient the longer you've sort of gotten to know them and built that rapport the more comfortable they are likely to be bringing these things up because they they know you they trust you they've had that kind of build up of a relationship with you rather than you know if they're seeing somebody different every single time they might not have that same kind of level of of trust and wanting to discuss it with you. But on the flip side, they might feel more comfortable discussing it with you than say their GP that's known them since they were tiny. So that that might kind of work in your benefit as well. I think that's true of adults, but I think that some of the younger adolescents, perhaps more so for the staff and maybe the patients as well, because they've known you for such a long time, 
it can then be difficult and almost you've got that parental embarrassment from them oh god you know we're talking to my nurse it's so embarrassing because I've known her since she was you know since I was a baby so there is an element of that but I think that's where our confidence has to come in to break that down and say look I'm not embarrassed I'm perfectly happy to discuss this with you and then all the sniggering and giggling and things you know is less likely to happen and say that if they want to you know giggle and snigger whatever that's absolutely fine that's a completely normal and absolutely fine reaction you know and you might give a little bit as well because I think think bring that levity in is really important so it doesn't feel like this really heavy discussion yes what I was going to say there was just using age-appropriate words so you know it's no good saying to a somebody at 14 and has there been any issues when you've been masturbating and they're gonna go oh you know you need to use the words that they're using in in the street language as it were but also not trying to be cool because that's that's just never cool if you're trying to be cool. What do you do about the changing the words when you're talking to lesbian, gay, transgender people who might already consider themselves to be different because of their bleeding disorder if they then think that being one of those members of those communities makes them even more different? That is a tricky one. And obviously, as a cisgender woman, I have to understand that my, my viewpoint is entirely from that area of privilege. I think it's very important, you know, ask, ask what pronouns they want you to use, ask, you know, how they would like to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And I think doing our own research as well really helps. We have to be able to, to come to them with the right information. And I think, you know, there's some great resources out there, Stonewall, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that we validate their gender identities and affirm them and I think that is the sort of the first big step in building that kind of relationship if they know that they have our, again, the unconditional positive regard and the affirmation from us that I think will make a huge difference. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's completely true. And I think, again, just coming back to the fact that it's okay to admit if you're not sure and to actually admit to that patient, do you know what, I'm not entirely sure how to address this conversation, but please just, you know, forgive me for my ignorance if that, if you don't know because they're they're much more likely to respect you for not lagging your way through than to just say oh actually you've you've taught me something today and and that's that I mean we do that all the time not just to do with this but in any aspect of our healthcare we we learn all the time from our consultations with patients and I certainly know of several people who are transgender within the bleeding disorders community and I think the thing then that's difficult for us as healthcare professionals is what do we call a woman with now severe haemophilia and I think that we need to be much more cautious about how we treat them as individuals and make sure that we're supporting them in their choices really as well. I mean from a gender neutral standpoint a person with haemophilia. Yeah that's 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 a you know, getting the medical fraternity to use those words rather than calling people a haemophiliac is quite difficult, isn't it? So you're, I absolutely, I'm with you. I call everybody a people with haemophilia, not haemophiliacs, but it is difficult to get those words used in normal, everyday parlance rather than having to think about, I've got to do something different for this individual. And does that then impact on the kinds of conversations that you can have with them around sex and sexuality? I mean, potentially, yes. But it would be very individual to what that person's sexual preferences were. And again, I think it's about not making assumptions that just because 
someone is a transgender woman that they are straight or gay or bisexual so I think it's again just sort of tailoring that to the individual and as April said don't be afraid to admit if you don't know something I think that's really really important I think there's nothing worse than someone trying to blag their way through a sensitive conversation and I think you know you'd have much more respect for someone if they said look I'm, I'm really not sure about about this but I will go away and I will find out and you know we can discuss it again at the next appointment or whatever I think that's that's really important so not making assumptions and being able to reflect on your own abilities as a practitioner and know where your own blind spots are and not be afraid to admit those. I think my last question is I suppose within the world of bleeding disorders the focus has always been on men with haemophilia and the fact that they might get a psoas bleed and they might get blood in their sperm and there's been very little if any focus on women with bleeding disorders and their sexuality and the impact that having vaginal bleeding must have just on on having sex what should we be doing because I don't think we are but you might disagree what should we be doing to support those women more? I completely agree that it is it does seem a bit top heavy on the advice for for men but absolutely women and girls with bleeding disorders do experience bleeding problems as well during sex and they may get bruising and possibly depending on what their bleeding disorder is they may even get you know muscle bleeds and joint bleeds vaginal bleeding can happen even for people who haven't got a bleeding disorder but of course if you've got a bleeding disorder that risk is even higher and i think that it's about educating our women that for some for some women who are bleeding a lot you know if they've got um, heavy menstrual bleeding you know they may they may feel that they don't want to have penetrative sex but the sex isn't just about penetrative sex there's lots and lots of other things that they can enjoy that you know with with a partner and i think that sometimes if it, it's spoken about with men who have got swollen or restricted joints but for both women as well if they've got joint damage sometimes that can affect the self-confidence and make them feel less attractive and i think that it's about helping those women to realize that they are sexual beings too that they can enjoy a healthy sex life and i guess my best advice for for anyone men and women is is to use lubrication I think that for women that is something that's overlooked and I think that that is something that can help them during their there's lots and lots of different ways that that we can help them to enjoy sex life whilst they're menstruating I think that's something that we can help overcome the embarrassment of that or perhaps the you know the messiness or the awkward if they've got a partner who respects that and is okay with the fact that you know yes it might be a bit messy but you know there's lots of things that we can help them to get around around those issues but also for those women who experience joint damage we can help them with advice on different sexual positions that put less strain on their joints and things like this so yeah they're absolutely entitled to the same level of uh, advice and support that we give to our men yeah absolutely I mean there's obviously huge gender disparities within medicine as a whole which uh, are sort of well known but as you said especially within bleeding disorders there has been this really heavy focus on on men and I think also with women sort of helping them be able to discuss with their partners as well so you know if you've got a new partner bringing up these discussions can feel really really intimidating you know it's it's difficult enough if you've got a new partner and you're going to have sex for the first time and then you've got a bleeding disorder and there's this whole added layer on top of it and being able to sort of help them discuss that I think is really important as well. I think disclosure becomes an issue for any patient with any bleeding disorder about them sharing that with their partner 
anyway, never mind whether or not they're about to have sex with them. But I think that that becomes absolutely key in sharing that with them so that they can enjoy the best, the very best sexual experience that they might have on the basis that some of those elements are there's less anxiety around it. But I think particularly for women, this might be a bit of a sweeping generalisation and I apologise if it is, but I think sometimes women with bleeding disorders might have a heightened anxiety over men because visually it can look messy and I think that 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 can be an anxiety for a lot of women but if their partner is okay with that then it's going to just make the whole experience you know a lot better for them. Many thanks to Joe and to April for what was a really interesting conversation about the birds and the bleeds, areas that we might find difficult but also that people with bleeding disorders might find difficult in talking about and how we can address that. I would also like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank our sponsors who make Heencast possible and I would ask you to share and subscribe. <laughs>